Good afternoon, everybody. Good to see you. Hope you had a meaningful Passover and a delightful night to be much observed. We were at the office last evening, and we had a wonderful time. I thank uh, Jim and Robin Hazen for hosting that to make it such a memorable occasion. We hope that you did, too. Our world is racked by problems and evils of all kinds. When we watch our news programs, we are continually appalled by what we see. And we ask, why are there so many problems in the world? Why can't we all learn to get along with each other? We witness graft and corruption in government, terrorism, gun violence, the Syrian civil war, kidnappings in Africa, religious hypocrisy, nuclear proliferation, degradation of oppressed peoples. What is wrong with our world? Why so much suffering? You know, people who've professed Christian faith have lost their faith not being able to answer that question, including theologians, who are still theologians, who become agnostics. How did we end up in such a deplorable condition? Is this the fruit of evolution? If so, I thought we were supposed to be getting better. So what is the source of this evil? Is there a solution to the spiritual sickness of the human heart? The answer is yes. God provides an explanation in one chapter of our Bible. Do you know which one it is? The clue that I'll offer you, it has to do with God's word. The title of today's sermon is, Where Did We Go Wrong? Where Did We Go Wrong? Let's turn to Genesis 3. I'd like you to put a Bible marker, a ribbon marker, or a piece of paper, if you're using an electronic device, Put one of those little marks there for the uh, uh, for a marker of some kind, because we'll be coming back and forth. We're going to cross-reference elsewhere. Genesis chapter three. To set the stage, Genesis, of course, is our first book of the Bible, and it's the book of origins, the origin of the universe the origin of the human race, the origin of sin, the origin of redemption, origin of the family, origin of nations, and the origin of languages, and many, many more that we could list. It is the book of origins. And in Genesis 1, we have creation, then we have recreation. In Genesis 2, God makes a man, and he assigns him to dress and keep A beautiful garden. And then in chapter 3, we face a crisis. A crisis. And we learn about the origin of human sin. So let's go to Genesis 3, verse 1. Let us study this together to understand where did we go wrong. In verses 1 to 5, we have the deception and the seduction of the first couple. 
Verse 1, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, yea, has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? This was the formation of the yea, has God said, society. You know, that society still exists today. Yea, has God said? So let's look at this more closely. First of all, we're introduced by a serpent that can talk. Did you ever hear such a thing? The word serpent describes us one of the beasts of the field that was made in chapter 2. It was formed of the ground. And you know, it's not identified with any spirit until later Jewish literature in the intertestamental period. That is the period between Malachi and Matthew, roughly a 400-year period. And in their literature, they begin to associate this serpent with a fallen spirit. The word for serpent is nahash, nahash, which means shining one, shining one. Now, I want you to think, in the Bible, who was described as being bright or brilliant or shining? Remember what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians about an angel of light. Remember in Ezekiel, talks about the cherub with great brightness. This cherub was not made in God's image, unlike Adam. And this cherub led one-third of the angels in rebellion. And Paul in 1 Thessalonians calls him the tempter. And that's what we're reading in Genesis 3. A temptation. So who is he? Not until the last book of our Bible do we have a clear identification. Revelation. So leave your marker there. So I say it's important to leave it a marker because we will go back and forth and it'll speed up things for you. Revelation 12, verse 9, a very popular, well-known verse. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent. Old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And Genesis 3 tells us the story of that first deception. He now deceives the whole world. And it was the serpent that talks to Mother Eve. So back to Genesis 3, in verse 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Interesting, this word subtle, meaning cunning, crafty, shrewd, clever, mischievous, all used in a negative sense. But this is one of those Hebrew words that also carries a good sense, a positive side. Because in the Proverbs, it's used for prudence, being prudent. Hebrew word is arum, arum. It speaks of wisdom. But if we go to James chapter 3 now, starting in verse 13, James 3, starting in verse 13, we're going to learn there's two kinds of wisdom. This story of Genesis 3 has a lot to do with the pursuit of wisdom. Genesis, I should say James 3, 13. James 3, 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, conduct, his works with meekness of wisdom. 
But if you have bitter envyings and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is, notice three things, earthly, sensual, and devilish. Notice that set of three, because that three is going to come up again later. Earthly, sensual, and devilish. That's the world's wisdom for you. Verse 16, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that's from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So there are two kinds of wisdom. It was used proverbially, this word or this concept. Remember what Jesus said in the Gospels? Be wise as what? But harmless as doves. Be wise as serpents. So it had a good sense, and yet it also had a very bad sense. So this word, subtle, Genesis 3, 1, is a very powerful word. It also has another side to it. That in the Hebrew, there's a word play with a similar word for the word naked. And I want you to remember that word naked because that comes up in our story later. And we find in this association that innocence can be turned through craftiness to vulnerability, shame, exploitation, and exposure. Back to Genesis 3 in verse 1. And so the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. There's no mention of a time gap from Genesis 2 to 3. It's just an abrupt story that enters into the account of Genesis. And I want you to notice how many times the word and appears, because in the Hebrew that word's important. Some newer translations take it out. But it's there for a reason. It emphasizes every detail of the story. And this, and that. And he said to the woman, he talked to a woman. Here's a serpent talking to a a woman recently made. And she thinks nothing of this snake talking to her. Maybe she never expected that animals should not talk. Can you think of any other stories in the Bible where... God permitted an animal to actually communicate with a human being? Balaam's donkey. So he said to the woman, Yea, has God said. These are the devil's first words in the Bible. Yea, has God said. Doubt is planted in God's word. And he feigns ignorance. Ignorance. Has God really said you cannot eat of every tree? And he says, God, and yet starting in chapter 2, verse 4, it was the Lord God, Lord God, Lord God, several times until here. Lord God was a personal name in that part of the story. Yahweh Elohim, his covenant name, that God was close, he was intimate, he was personal with these human beings. And now Satan just refers to him as Elohim. And notice it. Mother Eve will respond and say the same thing. She only refers to the divinity by Elohim. So has God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Here is opposition to God's word. He's implying that God was jealous and restricting her freedom. 
Verse 2. And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She corrects the servant. Oh, yeah, we can. We can eat. The woman said to the serpent. Verse 2. Showing that she's trusting. She has no reason to doubt what's going on. She may not have thought that speaking to an animal was unusual. And I want you to notice something else. Go over to chapter 2. Remember God had forbidden our parents from taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat thereof you shall Surely die. Dying you shall die. And the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a help meet for him. And the rest of the chapter goes on to describe how God creates Eve. And so she was not present to hear this prohibition about the tree of a knowledge of good and evil. She's created afterwards, which might help explain what happens in this story. So, verse 2 of Genesis 3, the woman says we may eat. She corrects the serpent. But when you compare what she says, she omits two important parts of Genesis 2.16. What did God say? Of every garden of the tree, every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Every tree and freely And Mother Eve leaves off those two important words. Why? Why are they omitted? Was it deliberate? Was it careless? You know, it raises questions in our minds. But already, we have a change in what God had said. Genesis 3 and verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, she's already mixed up the two trees because the tree that was described as being in the midst of the garden was the tree of life. And yet here she describes it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being in the midst of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, see, she refers to him as Elohim, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it. Did you read that in chapter 2? Neither shall you touch it. No. She's adding a phrase. Now, where did that come from? Now, maybe Adam, trying to keep his wife away from that tree, had said, don't even go near it, don't even touch it. But it wasn't in the prohibition in chapter 2. So now we have an addition to the word in some fashion. Again, raising questions about this story. And then I want you to notice at the end of that verse 3, she says, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That word lest implies there's a possibility you'll die. And that's not what God said. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. She has modified the word. So when I gave you the clue in my SPS that all has to do with the word, we're already seeing Doubt of the word, opposition of the word, omitting a word, adding a word, diluting a word. 
I think we're starting to get a sense of what's happened here. It all relates to the Word of God. And it's a problem yet today, isn't it? It's a problem for all humanity. So back to Genesis 3, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God does know in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and you may be you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Did you hear my emphasis on ye? See, our older English distinguished you singular and you plural, which is shown in the King James Bible. It is not shown in the New King James Bible. Thou and thee is singular for you, but ye is plural. So who is the serpent talking to besides the woman? In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, Ye shall not surely die. There's someone else there with her. Who is this? We'll find out as we continue through the story. And so he utterly denies God's word. He contradicts God's word here, this serpent, as he speaks to the woman. You shall not surely die. He adds the word surely that she had added, or had omitted, rather. So now he corrects her. He puts that word surely back in. Here we are. You shall not surely die. Figure of speech, strong negation. This is the first lie in the Bible. And how did Jesus describe the devil? He said he is a liar from the beginning. And the father, the instigator, the originator of lies. You shall not surely die. When you examine the immortal soul doctrine, you find a shade of meaning attached to that erroneous doctrine as well. Genesis 3, 5, For God does know in the day that ye, you plural, eat thereof, then your eyes will be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When you eat thereof, your eyes will be open. You know that will happen. In verses 7 and 22, when our parents do eat the forbidden fruit, their eyes are open. The devil is partly right. And that's how he works on people, with half-truths. That is the nature of deception. A little bit of truth, a little bit of error, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And you shall be as gods. Now think back to the cherub as Isaiah described him. When he rebelled and took one third of the angels in rebellion against God, what did Lucifer say that reminds you of this passage, you shall be as gods? Isaiah says, quoting the cherub, I will be like the most high. And now he wants the first couple in on the plot to be like God. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Good and evil occurs as a set of words seven times in our Bible. You shall be Elohim. That's what it is in Hebrew. You shall be as gods. Elohim. Your eyes will be open. 
And so what he's doing is implying that God's motive is unjust. unjust. He's trying to keep from Adam and Eve some divine prerogatives. It's unfair. And Satan works with half-truths through all this lying and deception. You'll be as gods knowing good and evil, but yes, they'll know good and evil, but now they'll have a moral nature that is fixed in sin. And to which way will carnal human nature tend to go? Towards the good or towards the evil? Well, we're here as a result of recognizing what we needed to repent of. The meaning of baptism. We were reminded of that just a few nights ago at Passover. And so you shall be as gods. This was perhaps the origin of Gnosticism. This secret knowledge that you must be initiated to. The beginning of philosophy. You know in the Middle Ages, philosophy and theology were one in what was called scholasticism. But then after the age of reason, the two parted. And philosophy thereafter wanted nothing more to do with theology. And now they are competitors in the world of ideas. And they are to this day. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. How would God know evil? Only as he witnesses it in his creatures. God cannot commit evil. Verse 6, Genesis 3. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, notice the set of three here. Good for food, pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Verses 6 to 8 describe the first sin. And... We have a transgression of God's word. Transgression of God's word. And so Mother Eve evaluated what the devil had said. And she gives in through credulity or unbelief or appetite or ambition, covetousness, being persuaded by worldly wisdom, maybe a combination of them all. But she was deceived. She sees three things. The tree was good for food. Pleasant to the eyes. A tree to be desired to make one wise. And so she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave to her. Who was that missing person with her? Her husband. And he did eat. What a story we have here. She made a choice. He made a choice. And both of them were bad. Desiring to make one wise philosophy, the love of wisdom. Why didn't Adam speak up? He had heard the prohibition in chapter 2. Why didn't he prevent this from happening? We don't know, but he, he caves in. Was he using her as a guinea pig to see what would happen because he too wanted to eat the fruit? Again, it arouses questions in our minds. But this verse 6 has parallels elsewhere in Scripture. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Let's look at the origin of sin because James summarized it very well for us. James, chapter one, starting at verse 14. 
James 1, 14. But every man, every person is tempted when he or she is drawn away of his or her own lust, desires, and enticed. And then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished, or when it's full grown, brings forth death. Did you ever notice the life cycle mentioned in that verses 13 and 14? Conception, bringing forth in birth, maturity, and death. It's unique the way James has phrased this to remind us of the life cycle of sin, just like our own human life cycle. So where does sin originate? In the heart. It's conceived. It brings forth sin. Sin, when it's matured, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. And so we're drawn away by our lust and we're enticed. Now let's go to 1 John 2.16. Let's notice another set of three. 1 John 2.16. 1 John 2.16. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, Pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. The world held captive by a fallen spirit. Look how these three parallel the three things in Genesis 3, 6. The lust of the flesh. Eve saw that forbidden fruit was good for food. The lust of the eyes. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. Pride of life. She saw that it, would, it was desired to make one wise. You would think John is actually recounting a story, a little bit different words. And it seems to fit very well. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now I want you to go over to Luke chapter 4. Remember Jesus' temptation, te- fasting 40 days and nights, and the devil comes upon him and tempts him in three ways. There's our three again. Is there some connection? Let's take a look. Luke chapter 4, verse 3. Luke 4, 3. The devil said to him, Jesus, If you be the Son of God, command this stone to be made bread. Remember, Jesus very hungry. He's famished. Forty days fasting. Oh, yes, just like for Mother Eve, turning that stone into bread, it was good for food. Lust of the flesh. And three times Jesus will retort to the devil by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, a book of Moses, to contradict what Satan is saying. Verse 4, it's written... That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We're back to that theme again, the word of God. Then the devil in verse 5 and 6 takes him up to a high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this power I'll give you and the glory of them, for that's delivered to me. And to whomsoever will, I will, I give it. 
If you would do one thing, bow down and worship me. All is yours. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, get behind me, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Yes, pleasant to the eyes, lust to the eyes. And now verses 9 through 11. Then the devil brings him to Jerusalem, sets him on a pinnacle of a temple and said to him, if you be the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands, they'll bear you up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy again, answering and said, It is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Yes, desire to make one wise, pride of life. What do you mean, if I'm the Son of God? I'll show you. He could have fallen for that trap. He doesn't. He quotes the Bible, and Satan has no answer. Jesus succeeded where Eve failed in these same three ways. Tree that's good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desire to make one wise, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. That's why he's our Savior. And the devil tried the same tactic on him. So back to Genesis 3, now in verse 7. So after they both eat of this forbidden fruit, the eyes of them both are open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, that is, things to gird about. Why'd they do that? I mean, you read in chapter 2, 25, that when God made Eve from the rib of Adam, they were both naked. Genesis 2, 25, the man and his wife And we're not ashamed. And now something has changed. Now all of a sudden they're very conscious about their naked human bodies. They had sinned. What happened here affected the whole human race. As Paul explains in Romans 5. Because Paul says, by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. It had a spin-off effect because we've all made this same mistake in one way or another in our lives. And so now they look at themselves and they realize they're naked and they sew fig leaves together. Fig leaves. What are these? Well, you know, it's interesting. People wonder, well, where was the Garden of Eden? Well, let me give you one clue. Figs were indigenous to Palestine, but not Babylonian. That's one clue we have in Genesis anyway. Fig leaves. Fig leaves and made themselves aprons. That's not a lot of clothing. And the traditional pictures <laughs> might be pretty close to all that they put on. Fig leaves. And through the centuries, people have seen a parallel of putting on fig leaves to man-made religion, trying to find righteousness of our own. You know, Isaiah talks about that because he says, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. But Isaiah also says that God, when we repent and turn to him in faith, will give us a robe of righteousness. And I want you to remember They make their own clothes, which are inadequate, very temporary, but another set of clothes will be provided later in the story. 
It'll be much better. So Genesis 3, verse 8. They heard the voice of the Lord God. There's Now he restored Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of day, and Adam and his and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. What we have here is an appearance of Christ on earth, because we know from our studies, and we have literature, that the God of creation, the God who dealt with Adam and Eve and all the patriarchs, was the one we now know as Jesus Christ. And when God appears on earth, that's called a theophany. Here is a theophany, which implies that God or Christ have been daily coming down and walking with them in the cool of the day. In the Middle East, a cool breeze comes in the evening. So in the wind of the day, that's what it says literally in the Hebrew. It's a Hebrew word, ruach, like spirit, wind, the cool of the day. God would come down habitually and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden to admire the garden and enjoy time together, fellowship that was very special and personal. He was a personal God. So the Lord God comes down into the garden, and Adam and Eve hid themselves. Why was that? Conviction of sin. Guilty conscience. They feel alienated from God. They feel disgraced. This is the effect of sin. It separates us from our God, as Isaiah says. Separates us from our God. And so... They're hiding themselves. You know, historians, when they write about or write about religion, say there's been an evolution of religion through human history, and it's been man's quest for God. I wish they would read verse eight. Were Adam and Eve questing for God here? They're hiding from God. God comes looking for them. It's the first manhunt <laughs> because God wants to restore a relationship that's gone broken, as I'll show you later. So we have here Adam and his wife hiding in the cool of a day when God comes to fellowship with him. And the Lord God, verse 9, called to Adam. Now verses 9 to 13, we have the inquiry. God wants to discuss. With the original couple, what happened? And he calls for Adam and he says, where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Where are you? This is the first question of the Old Testament. Where are you? God seems to still be asking that. Where are you? Why have you broken our relationship. Why are you running from me? What have you done? You know what the first question of the New Testament is? In Matthew, the wise men said, asked, where is he that was born king of the Jews? Is there any connection between these two questions? It's amazing how you find links when you just ask simple questions like this. Where is he that's born king of the Jews? Here is God seeking these sinners. And this will become the primary theme of the rest of the Bible. 
In fact, Luke will tell us that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The ones who've run away from God. He comes looking for us. This is not man's quest for God. And so God will have a plan of restoration. He makes no, God makes no accusations against them. He simply asks, where are you? And Adam said in verse 10, four things. He says, I heard your voice in the garden as your footsteps, and I was afraid. Where'd that come from? Because I was naked. Well, he wasn't ashamed in chapter 2. And four, so I hid myself. Is he like God? I mean, Genesis 3, 5, the devil said, when you eat that forbidden fruit, you shall be as God. Is he act like, acting like God now? Hiding? No, you see, this is the fruit of sin. Now Satan has a, I mean, Adam and Eve have a fear of God. Fear of God through the guilt instinct. And they're starting to experience new emotions they had not felt before. So I hit myself, hid myself because I was naked. And that's that word that sounds like and is similar to the word subtle. See what subtlety has led to? Vulnerability, shame, exploitation, and exposure. I was naked, and so I hid myself. Shame associated with nudity exists to this day. I don't see one person here unclothed. It's a good thing, too. Even when Jesus returns with the armies of heaven, they wear garments, white garments. So I hid myself, which is in contrast to two later people in the same book who walk with God, Enoch and Noah. But right now, Adam and Eve are hiding because of what they've done. So God goes on with the inquiry in verse 11. One, he asked two questions. Who told you you were naked? Two, have you eaten of the tree where have I commanded you that you should not eat? Two questions. Sin was known to God. What God is doing here is trying to get them to confess, to own up to what they have done. Take ownership for what you've done. Be responsible. So let's see how Adam will respond. Verse 12. (laughs) The man said, The woman whom you, you gave to me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Now, all of you who have raised children, more than one child, you all know what's going on here. And all of us, as we think back in our childhood, we all recognize blame shifting. Oh, not, no, no, not me. He does not answer either question God asked. God asked, who told you you were naked and have you eaten of the tree? Instead, He replies, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat, as if she had forced this down his throat. (laughs) Carnal nature really reasons around in circles. 
illogically, doesn't it? We come up with the lamest excuses. That's the nature of people apart from God. This is blame shifting, cowardice, insolence. He's blaming God in part for giving her such a deceiving woman. And he makes excuses. You know, even Job refers to this in his story when he says, If I covered my transgressions as Adam, I would be guilty. He makes reference to this very incident. So, the man said, The woman you gave to be with me gave me that fruit, and I did eat. What a shame. He doesn't own up to it. And so the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, Well, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. There's a figure of speech here. What is this? Uh, In the Hebrew, deep feeling of indignation. God's anger is aroused because he knows his own creatures made in his image have been deceived by this fallen cherub. Sin is very deceptive. So what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And so the interrogation now is over. It's been admitted three things. One, they ate the forbidden fruit. Two, the woman gave it to the man. And three, the serpent beguiled her. I want to show you how Paul deals with this in his epistles. First, sorry, 2 Corinthians 11.3. This story is fundamental to understanding biblical doctrine. It's why it's so important and why it's placed so early in our Biblical story. 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul writes, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. False gospel presents us a challenge just like the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3, and the forbidden fruit. Paul tells us the serpent beguiled Eve through subtlety, and so her mind became corrupted from the simple truth that she had already known to that point. Now 1 Timothy 2, 13. 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14. 1 Timothy 2, 13. But I, for Adam was first formed, and then Eve. 1 Timothy 2, 13. And Adam was not deceived. Wow, what a condemnation. And we get that from Paul. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So Eve's response was correct. She had been deceived. The serpent beguiled her, so she ate. Back to Genesis 3, now verse 14. Genesis 3, starting verse 14. So now comes the sentence when God acts as judge. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you'll go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. You know, in the interrogation, 
God dealt with man first, and then the woman, and then the serpent. But now the sentencing goes in reverse order. He deals with the serpent first, then he deals with the woman, and then finally with the man. There is no no interrogation of the serpent. He doesn't ask him any questions. He gives a sentence instead. Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle. You know what was cursed in this chapter? Verse 14, the devil or the serpent. In verse 17, the ground. And that's it. God does not directly curse Adam and Eve out of grace because they were made in his image. And God is enacting a plan for their redemption. But he does curse the serpent in the ground. And we'll see how that comes into the story in a bit. So Genesis 3.14, You are cursed above all cattle, and with all the rest of the animals will be cursed along with you. Above every beast of the field, and upon your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, snakes might eat a little bit of dust as they're consuming their prey, but it's more of a figure of speech for being conquered. Because in Joshua, for example, uh, the enemies were put underfoot. Joshua invites the men to actually stomp their feet upon the necks of their opponents that they've just conquered. Eat my dust kind of a thing. Well, that's the way it's used here as well, that this describes... Uh, Satan's abasement, humiliation, subservience as the snake slithers through the ground. And it's striking that in Isaiah 65, even in the millennium, it says the dust shall be the serpent's food, even in the ages to come. Wow. So the serpent is cursed. And now Genesis 3.15 one of the most important verses of our entire Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity. It's an unusual word of a blood feud, of malice between you and the woman, that is the serpent and the woman, and between your seed, the devil's seed, and her seed. Who's his seed? Well, that's the wicked of the world. Those who fall for Satan's lies and ally themselves with him. Who is her seed? Well, ladies, do women have seed? They have eggs, don't they? This speaks of something very special. Her seed. This is a prophecy. First prophecy of the Bible. First prophecy of Genesis. First messianic prophecy called the Proto-Evangelium, that is, the first good news. Her seed is describing a future descendant that will bruise the head of the serpent, the Messiah, the coming of Messiah. And this verse has long been understood as the first messianic prophecy. Proto-Evangelium is called. And he describes a messianic victory because, you see, to bruise the head, the head is the vital part. And men, when they kill snakes, they strike the head, cut off the head. But 
The serpent will bruise a heel. Where do snakes bite? Tend to bite on the heel, poison to, and to kill. It's interesting how this verse 15 has spawned many legends and myths throughout world history and literature. Take, for example, George and the dragon. And many like that around the world. This ongoing battle. Why is it we are so afraid of snakes? People don't like snakes, do they? Unless you're, what's the word for a person who loves snakes? Is it herpetologist? Thank you, Jim. Jim, I can always rely on Jim to give me the correct answer. Herpetologist. <laughs> Most people are not herpetologists. We don't like those snakes. It goes right back to this verse. Let's take some cross-references. Galatians 4.4. 4. Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, Galatians 4.4, made of a woman, born of a woman, made under the law. Galatians 4.4. Paul's very specific. He was the seed of the woman. Galatians 4.4. Now let's go to Galatians 3.7. Just back a chapter, Galatians 3.7. Know you therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7, the children of Abraham. Who else? How else does he describe them? Verse 14, 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles, all the nations, through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed, were the promises made. He said, not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. In verse 29, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. We today, who have gone through conversion and baptism, are now the body of Christ. We're joined one with him. He is the seed of the woman. He is our Messiah. So back to Genesis 3, now verse 16. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband. Your husband, and he shall rule over you. Describing verse two things about women thereafter, motherhood and being wives. Of motherhood, he says, from now on, you will give birth pangs in pain. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. It wasn't God's intention, but this is part of the result of sin. The birth pangs. I've witnessed it. We have four children. I was present with my wife for all four. It is not a pleasant experience. So, he talks about being a mother. Interesting, that word for sorrow also sounds like the word for tree. Tree, knowledge of good and evil. Tree on which Jesus was crucified. 
So many overlapping connections. And then the second thing is about being a wife. Your desire will be to your husband. You'll want to be close to him. Romance, attachment, leadership. But your husband's going to rule over you. What's he mean by that? Well, this is part of her punishment, right? It's in the context of difficulties that she's brought on herself because of her bad choice. So this last phrase, he'll rule over you, has been understood as part of headship and male leadership of the family. But there's much more to it. It does relate to her desire to submit to her husband, the desire to bear children, even regardless of the pain. But as Jewish and Christian scholars have understood by the phrasing of the Hebrews, talking about subjection, it is descriptive as opposed to being prescriptive. Something is less than ideal. Subjection, instead of being a helpmeet, she becomes subservient to a man that can even act like a despot at times. And in much of the world to this day, that is true of women's state. They're ruled by despots. In part of the Muslim world, but in other cultures as well. Describing a power struggle, subservience, domination. I can remember Dr. Herman Hay explaining this years ago in that way to us. One of our conferences of her being attached to unsympathetic husbands who would abuse their authority. That is changed when a man is converted. Because then he begins to look to her for companionship, partnership, offers her Christ-like love as for the church, turning tyranny into servant leadership. But throughout history, that has not always been the case, has it been, for women's lot? Genesis 3.17, And to Adam he said, Because you have hearkened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Sorrow, in sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Adam hearkened to the voice of his wife instead of hearkening unto God, who said, Do not take of that tree. The first marital role reversal. Do not take, but he did take, as well as her. And so therefore, since you did do this, you shall eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. This is the effect of sin. God had ordained work back in chapter 2, verse 15. Work is not the curse. (laughs) I know sometimes it feels like that. But that's because work was made less pleasurable because of the curse. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow, the same word used for the woman's sorrow and childbirth. In sorrow shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Cursed is the ground. You know, this is why Paul describes this scene in Romans 8 this way. It's striking. But we all have to concur. This is the way things are. Romans 8 verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Even all creation is waiting for the sons of God, daughters of God to be born. 
For the creature or creation was made subject to vanity or uh, futility, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Verse 21 of Romans 8, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption or decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain as if in labor together until now. And we wonder why is there such conflict? Even in the animal world, why do they eat each other alive? And it turns our stomachs when we see it. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Yes, there's a redemption coming of creation. That's this good news that Jesus has brought for us. In the Proto-Evangelium. You see, what we just read in Romans 8 is the decay of the universe. Second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. Everything tending towards disorder and extinction. We see the effects of the curse all around us every day. So back to Genesis 3, 18. And so, Adam, thorns and thistles shall be. It bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. This is the origin of agriculture. You're now going to grow vegetables, Adam. Whereas in the garden, you're allowed to actually pluck the fruit right off the trees without much work at all. Now, you're going to have to till that soil, bend over, plant the seeds, weed it, water it, so you can eat. Making laborious toil, which God didn't intend originally. And he talks about, besides that, we have to fight off thorns. Isn't it not remarkable that when Jesus was being tried and being tortured by the Roman soldiers, what did they plant on his head? But a crown of what? Crown of thorns. Symbol of the curse on the ground. And thistles. Poisonous, noxious weeds shall it bring forth. You, you, you try to plant your vegetables, and what comes out of the ground is the weeds. And so we're constantly pulling up the weeds, pulling up the weeds. No end of it. And so you shall eat of the herb of the field, the origin of agriculture. Verse 19. In the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it were you taken. For dust thou art, and to dust you shall return. You ever hear that phrase before? We use this traditional in funerals. We are dust. Scientists say stardust. Well, God says we're dust to the ground. In the sweat of your face you'll eat bread, a figure of speech for all kinds of food. All your food will have to come from the ground and the animals. Whereas we were appointed to dress and keep a garden where we could just pick the fruit, now penalty of sin, extra work. And then as best as we can maintain life through all those years, eating of the vegetables, of the ground, what's the end result? Death. Till you return to the ground, for out of it were you taken. 
And for dust you art, and to dust you shall return. God said, dying you shall die. Adam lived 930 years. He didn't die the same day, but dying you shall die. He did begin to die when he and Eve took of that forbidden fruit. But he still died. 930 years later. But he still died. It's remarkable how many of the details of this story are related to the sacrifice of Christ. The tree. Acts and 1 Peter and others say he was nailed to a tree. Curse. Paul tells us in Galatians, Jesus was made a curse for us. Suffering. First Peter tells us of the sufferings of Christ. Death. Psalm 22, the great crucifixion psalm, said, you brought me to the dust of death. You see, he took our place when death was the punishment. So now verse 20 of Genesis 3. Verses 20 and 21, we actually have an act of faith through all this upset and disappointment. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, Chava, in Hebrew that is living, life giver, because she was the mother of all living. She's the mother of the one human race. And Adam now does something right. He shows faith in the Proto-Evangelium. Because from the woman would come the one that would crush the head of the devil. Remember, we started with Galatians that Jesus was made of a woman. We didn't finish that set of scriptures. Let's go to 1 John 3, 8. 1 John 3, 8. Just to tie this together a little bit better. 1 John 3, 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil. That relates to this story of Genesis 3. And now I want to take you to one more. Romans 16.20. This goes beyond our imagination. We know Christ is going to be victorious. And yet, because of who we are today, because of the meaning of Passover to Days of Unleavened Bread, we are now in the body of Christ. We are attached to Him as the head. And in Romans 16, verse 20, we have a reference back to Genesis 3. Paul writes, And the God of peace shall bruise, remember that from Genesis 3? Shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Whose feet? The church of God's feet. Because we are in Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. You mean because we're in Christ, we're going to have some part in this victory? It'll be Christ's victory, but because we are who we are, we have hope. 
So back to Genesis 3.20, when Adam calls his wife's name Eve, mother of the living, life giver, he's expressing faith in this restoration program of God's. And so in verse 21 in Genesis 3, to Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. This is divine provision. Now, where did God provide these coats of skins from? You know, to take off the hide of an animal, hopefully out of mercy, it would be dead first. And here we have the first sacrifice of animals. And who does it? God. This is substitutionary atonement to provide a covering and atonement for Adam and Eve, with their skins of these animals, the first bloodshedding. God does it for Adam and Eve out of grace. And he provides for them clothing far better than aprons of leaves. Because, you see, skins provide warmth and protection and comfort and durability. But how long were they waistcoat of leaves last, do you suppose? You'd be making leave aprons every day, I would guess. But skins, people still wear some skins today. Part of their normal attire. Now, Genesis 3, 22 to 24, the expulsion. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take of that tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden to till the ground from whence he was taken. Behold, the man has become as one of us. That is said in irony. In the Hebrew, this is ironic. Man was not like God. <laughs> That's the whole point of an irony. Man is a wreck. He's in a ruin here. Man, oh yeah, he's like one of us, all right. Look what he's done now. Brought death upon his head. He's become like one of us. Here we have the father and son in communication together. Yes, we do know good and evil. And so now, lest we put forth our hand and take of the tree of life and live in our sinful state forever. God acts gracefully to expel us, humankind, from the garden. It was a punishment to be expelled. It was an act of grace to prevent us from becoming immortal in our sin. God needs no more enemies in this universe. We're told by Paul, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel? Jesus Christ. Life and immortality comes through him, through his sacrifice. And so here is the first sentence. Therefore the Lord God, verse 23, sent them forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence it was taken. Paradise lost. As part of our literature in the English world, this is banishment, exile, judgment, and yet it's also an act of mercy and grace so that down the road we would have a chance to repent 
and be redeemed. For Christ to pay a ransom price to bring us into the body of Christ. And so, therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to work until the garden. So he drove out the man. That's an even stronger word. It's like Adam, knowing he was to dress and keep the garden, lingered on and was loath to leave, but now God forces him out. He cannot take the chance of that man taking of that tree of life and living forever in such a state. So he drives him out. And he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden carabine with a flaming sword that turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. He drove him out. Sin separates us from God. And he places at the east of the garden a word shakan that was used for a tabernacle, God's dwelling place. God will be in the garden, and outside guarding it will be the cherubim. Remember the tabernacle images, the temple images, the cherubim that guard God's throne, the Ark of the Covenant? He places them here, and then there's a flaming sword. It doesn't say it's in the angel's hands. It says a flaming sword, the sword of the Lord, the term used elsewhere in our Old Testament. And so they're cast out. They place them at the east of the garden. And so people are driven east, the cradle of civilization. So we are told by some historians is in the east. Others that went east, Cain, people, Following a Tower of Babel, all went east. Interesting. And so we have, verse 24, the beginning of civilization. Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, in his book, Mystery of the Ages, devoted a whole chapter to the mystery of civilization. I refer you to it. I also refer you to the Bible study course, Lesson 7, all about civilization. The mystery of civilization. And so this is our civilization, folks. It's not been fully redeemed yet, but we're going in the right direction because of God's plan. He drives them out. Paradise lost. Is there a hope yet? Is there a way to bring us back into an Edenic state again? Let's go to the last book of the Bible. You see, we're in Genesis. That's one cover. Now let's go to the other cover. The two covers of the Bible are related by this story. Revelation 21 and verse 4. The last two chapters of Revelation describe a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And in that description, we have connections to Genesis 3. Genesis, I should say, Revelation 21.4. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Do you recognize the language of that verse from Genesis 3? Go to chapter 22 and verse 2. 22, 2. In the new Jerusalem, in the middle of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, 
and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of a lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. An Edenic state restored. Paradise regained. That's where we're heading, folks. We're going back to the beginning. We're going back to the garden. It's a wonderful story. It's why we need to read the whole Bible. Because all that's in the middle tells us how it's made possible. So that's our story of Genesis 3. Isn't it remarkable? We have traditions around the world that relate to this story. Two clay seals from archaeological digs at Nineveh may reflect it. On one, it seems to show a man and woman being tempted by a serpent. The other, their expulsion from the garden. Myths and legends like Pandora's box, where Zeus gives a box to a woman named Pandora and says, do not open it, because inside are all the troubles of the world. And what does she do? She opens Pandora's box. You see, these are all myths and legends that relate back to this story. So what about us? Do you suppose you and I would do any differently if we were the original couple in Genesis 3? Well, lest we get too haughty. Let me remind you of some well-known verses. I'm not going to turn there, but just for your notes. Genesis 6, 5 and 6. During the flood, God notices that the wickedness of man is great in the earth. Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After the flood, God smelled a sweet savor. Genesis 8.21, the Lord God said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of a man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, not original sin, but somewhere in our youth. And then in Romans or Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 8, he says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God and it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why we must be in the spirit, converted. So I get back to my original question. Where did we go wrong? The Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. By questioning and doubting God's word, becoming part of the yea, has God said, society, that's the root of all evil. Passover and days of unleavened bread represent forsaking sin. And to do this, we must trust and obey God's holy word. It reveals the mind and the plan of God. Why do we struggle so with sin? It relates to how we deal with God's word. It's one of the central lessons of Genesis 3. And so the Bible warns us to not doubt it, to not omit from it, To not add to it. To not dilute it. 
and to not contradict it. Genesis 3 is a foundational story explaining what is wrong with humankind. It not only explains how we came to be in such a miserable state, but also explains the way out through a sacrificial death of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Passover, in the days of unleavened bread, both relate back to this primeval story. The good news is that God has not left us in this condition of sin eternally, but has provided a way for us to be cleansed of sin and restored in fellowship to him. Only then can we live forever with him and Christ in the kingdom of God.